The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Morning, everyone. <clears throat> Scripture this morning is going to be from Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 28. You can find this on page 869 in your pew Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to take one. Don't worry, it's free. Now, he was casting on a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. <clears throat> and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept, speak, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is the word of God. So we're continuing our work through uh, Luke's gospel about the life and teaching of Jesus we spent a lot of time, haven't we, on learning about who Jesus is. Amazingly, he's the eternal Son of God. He's put on flesh. He's come to seek and save the lost. He's come to bring sinners to himself. So we've been watching over and over again how Jesus will come and, and show again who he is. And people will have to respond to him. And it's this, this pattern you watch all through the gospel. Jesus will reveal himself. Then there's a response. As we keep moving forward in the Gospel of Luke, we see that the response begins to turn more and more sour. So there will be these sweet moments, right, when we've, we've seen before a, a broken prostitute will come and she'll trust Jesus, he receives her, it's wonderful, but it doesn't always work that way. In fact, a majority of the people are responding uh, poorly to Jesus. As we know, it ends up with the religious leaders slandering him, and what are the crowds shouting? about Jesus as they stand before Pilate later on in the book. Crucify him. They're not going to respond well. So we've got this pattern, this idea where Jesus comes, reveals himself, people have to respond. And, and one thing I think is so interesting about our passage this morning is that it takes that pattern to another level. So you get Jesus revealing himself, you get people responding, and then you have Jesus responding to the people's response. He interacts with how they've responded to him. And I gotta tell you, I just love that about Jesus. 
You know, he could just come, reveal himself to you, and then uh, maybe you don't have the response you should have, and then he could just write you off and be done with you. Enough. He could just, he could throw you out. It could be over. He could judge you right then and there. But Jesus is so patient and so kind that when even, even when people are slandering him, insulting him, rejecting him, he keeps after them. And don't you love that about him? How many of you, if, if you, if you love and trust Jesus this morning, how many of you, you responded rightly to Jesus the first time you encountered him? <laughs> no? Okay. I don't see one hand in the air. Me neither. How thankful are you that even though it was wrong, it was crooked, he kept after you, didn't he? And I'm hoping that even as we look at this text, that's exactly what's going to happen this morning. He's going to keep after you, keep seeking you out. So we're going to see the story uh, work like this. Another incredible miracle by Jesus, and then the people's response. And then we're going to hear Jesus' response to the people's response. And so that ought to get in your mind what you should be thinking of as you consider the passage. What should you be thinking of? Well, who is Jesus? That's what you should be thinking of. Who is he? And then you should be thinking of your own response to him. You should be asking, how, how, how have I responded to him, and does it fit with who he is? So who Jesus is, how have you responded to him? And then there's another level here. You've got to ask the question, how would Jesus respond to me? based on this passage. What would he say to me? And I think this is, the reason this is in here is because hopefully his response to our response might change our next response. You hear what I'm saying? Okay. His response to our response might motivate in us a new response, a fresh response. So we're going to walk through the story and we're going to see Jesus' miracle, the people's response, and Jesus' response to them. But before we, before we get to the story, I feel like there's a couple of characters we need to think more about so we can understand what's going on. One main character in the story was called Beelzebul. Did you catch that? Who's that guy? Who is that guy? Well, um, Baal was a name for an idol back in the old, old school, the Old Testament, and that name got turned into kind of like Oh, Baal, that means Lord, so now let's call him Lord of the Flies or Lord of the, Lord of the Poo, Lord of the Burning Trash. That's really what it means. And so it became this dark, uh, insulting kind of word for the devil himself, for Satan. Uh, he's, he's Lord of Destruction, uh, Lord of Corruption. So it's fitting, right? So we, we get to think about the devil today a little bit or Satan and uh, I'm aware sometimes we Western folks struggle in believing in the devil. How, how do you all feel about the devil? Um, are you convinced that's a real thing, or does it feel like fairy tale land to you? You know, oftentimes if you're watching television or something, we, we seem to think of the devil like a cartoon character. You know, he's got horns and a little red tail and a fork, and he's playing pool and drinking Bud Light at his party in hell, you know? And so you're like, ha-ha. But no, really, right? The way the Bible describes the devil is way more nuanced, way more complex. He's brilliant. He's a fallen angel. He's very powerful. He's got two goals. What are the, what is, what's the devil's two goals? Number one, don't ever forget this. He wants to deceive you. That's his main party. He wants to deceive you. And he's got three major lines he wants to give you. Number one, God's not good. God is not good. You know, you think of demonic, you think of, I don't know, goat sacrifices in the woods or something. That's not what he's after. You know what his first line is? God's not good. 
His second line is, his word's not true. His third one, therefore, you should replace him with something else. That's the devil's main party, scripturally. Less than giving you nightmares, uh, he wants to deceive you about God, God's word, and then so bring in a new God. The second thing he wants to do is he wants to destroy you. He wants to wreck you. He wants to ruin you. Uh, he wants you to burn in hell with him forever. And before you get there, he wants to uh, just mess with you as, as much as possible. His goals for you are never good, which is why we realize he's such a good liar. Because when you're following his, his track, his train of thought, because I've followed it before, this is why I know this. Um, it looks so good, doesn't it? He never comes to you in a vision like drifting sulfur off his fangs, you know? He doesn't come to you with a temptation like this. Hey, I'm here with this temptation. I just want you to know you'll be believing a lie and you'll totally ruin your life. Are you ready? Because how would you respond to something that blatant? Get out of my life. Get out of my face, right? You're gross. Move on. Oh, no. How does he come? Wow, this looks really good. Here, right? See, so as, we, as we think about Satan, don't let him be in that cartoon realm and don't think of something... Um, Satanist necessarily to be, you know, pentagrams and dead cats. It's way more subtle than that. It's just believing a lie. It's just not trusting yourself to Jesus. In fact, as we're going to see, the devil is very happy with you being moral. I think that's what's so scary about this passage. He's really happy with you being a moral person. He's happy to have you religious. In fact, he would love it. He would just love it if you were self-righteous and didn't think you had any need for Christ. So that's our first character. It's the devil. He's in here a lot. Second character takes us to the crowds. You know, I said the devil's happy to have you, you know, moral. He's happy to have you spiritually middle class thinking you have something in your spiritual bank account. He's happy with that. And, and in this passage, he kind of has the crowds. They play a huge role in the story, the crowds. And as we read through Luke, these crowds are not made up mostly of rampant evildoers. Okay? Luke will point out those people. Remember the tax collectors? Who are they? Rampant evildoers, right? Mafia, crime, lying, corruption, drugs, um, cartels, big bad sins. Amazingly, it's those people who tend to be repenting and coming to Jesus. No, this crowd, the crowd is full of people who are good and moral and religious. That's what's so shocking. They're good and moral and religious. And who is it, my friends, if you know the story, who is it that sends Jesus to the cross? Is it the tax collectors? Is it the prostitutes? No. It's the good, moral spiritually middle-class people who reject Jesus with the greatest harshness. So those are our two characters, the devil, the crowds. Now let's get into our story. Look at verse 14. The story begins like this. Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. When you get a miracle story like this, you got to kind of put yourself there in that moment, okay? The Bible knows the difference between demonic oppression and a medical sickness. This guy has demonic oppression. And what's the demon doing to him? He can't speak, okay? And uh, 
In the Greek, it probably means he can't speak or hear either, either one. So just put yourself in his shoes. Would you enjoy not being able to speak? Now, other people in your life might enjoy that um, for a moment. But can you imagine being deaf and dumb? No, no ability to communicate your heart. No ability to connect in that same way everybody else does. Moreover, what's it like to be demonically oppressed like this? It's got to be dark, discouraging, condemning, um, lonely, full of despair. This guy's life is, it's tough. And in the ancient Near East, he doesn't have a lot of uh, government programs to help the deaf and the mute. In fact, there's none. And so he's lost, he's broken, he's an outsider, he's helpless. And what does Jesus do for him? He heals him. He heals him. So if you put yourself in the man's shoes, all of a sudden you couldn't hear. Now you can hear. You couldn't speak. Now you can speak. You were oppressed. You, you were condemned. You were discouraged. You were in despair. Now there's hope. Now there's peace. You're in your right mind. You've been delivered. You've been set free. How do you feel? How do you feel? Wow. And did you see the first response of the people? They don't have a choice. End of verse 14. And the people, what? They marveled. They marveled. What's it mean to marvel? Your, draw, your jaw drops. The whole crowd goes, whoa. You're, you're amazed. You're shocked. You're talking to your neighbor. Did you see that? Wow, there's no, uh, was he playing part? This is, Jesus is not a TV evangelist, okay? This isn't one of those, I feel like I had a headache and the guy prayed for me and now I feel better. No, 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 no. When Jesus does miracles, totally different league, okay? It's instantaneous, it's complete, it's done. You know what, you'll never find Jesus' enemy saying he never did miracles, he was a trickster. You'll never find it. Why is it, why is it that they never say that? They simply could not say it. All of his massive miracles in front of all the crowds, everybody knew he did incredible miracles. The apostles later can even say, hey, you guys saw what he did. And the crowds are like, yeah, we saw what Jesus did. The people marveled. So what have they seen? What's the evidence that's right in front of their faces? The kindness and the power of Jesus, right? There it is. The kindness and the power of Jesus. Is he doing miracles to steal the man's money? Is he doing miracles to put the guy on his knees and make him submit? Is he doing miracles that are at all selfish? No, what are these miracles doing? They're healing, they're helping, they're showing mercy, they're restoring, and nobody can argue with it. The kindness and the power of Jesus. Now look at verse 15 and be amazed. What do they say about him? He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. What did they just say? Did you, did you hear it? They can't hope to say, well, he really didn't do a miracle. They can't say that. Everybody saw it. So, so what spin do they add to this? Jesus, has the, Jesus can only do this because he has the devil's power. That's what they said. Jesus, they said, is demonic. He has the devil's power. You can only do this because you have the Lord of the flies on your side. It, you know, when we insult one another, how many of you have said, well, you're a Beelzebul, okay? That one's kind of out of fashion for some reason. But have you ever heard an insult that was dark and dirty and mean and low gutter? 
and it hits you right in the, right in the kidneys. Oh, have you ever given one? Okay, yeah, I have too. In this context, this is as low as it can get. Moreover, if you just think in, in, in the reality of the spiritual world, what is, what is maybe the worst thing you can say to God? You're satanic? And haven't you just flipped the whole world upside down? This is the lowest possible insult they can give. And, and what is it that conjured up the insult? He healed someone. Wow. Why do you think they're responding like this? What is it that could make you look at someone so powerful and so kind and slander him like this? Does it have anything to do with evidence? I mean, as you look at the evidence, does this make you think that Jesus is demonic? All the times he's helping people? You know, talking about love, forgiveness, compassion, honesty, integrity. Does it make you think, oh, Jesus is the devil? Anybody been, you know, struggling with that? I just want, no, of course not. That's insane. That's ridiculous. Does this have to do their conclusion with evidence? It has nothing to do with evidence. It's in the face of the evidence. Why do people slander Jesus in the face of the evidence? Why? Have you ever done this? Can you remember at any time in your life? You, you want to wriggle out and kind of push Jesus over to the side somehow? Right? Don't we kind of want to get out from under his lordship, under his control, get out from under our need for him? And so we got to find some reason to, to, to squeak out. And so we say something. Maybe it's not quite this dark. We say something about why he shouldn't have ownership of our lives or doesn't deserve our allegiance. That's what these folks are doing. So we see their response. They reject him. And now we get to see Jesus' response to their response, and it's three parts. Jesus gives an argument to the crowd, 17 to 23, a warning to the crowd, 24 to 26, and an invitation to the crowd, 27 to 28. An argument, a warning, and an invitation. And just as we work through this, I, I think we can see ourselves in each one. I need to hear Jesus' argument. I need to hear Jesus' warning. But I hope we will all land accepting Jesus' invitation. So let's start with the argument. Verse 17. But he, what are the next three words? Knowing their thoughts. This is one thing that's kind of uh, frightening about Jesus. I can hide from you a little bit. You can hide from me a little bit. I can show you kind of this exterior out here, but you don't know what's really going on in here, right? Praise God. And I don't really want to know everything that's going on in there for you. But guess who knows? Jesus knows. And in the context of this passage, Jesus knows everything about the nature of your response to him. He knows your spin that helps keep him away. He knows. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls, and if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Jesus here is just giving an argument. He's just using common sense. So what has Jesus just done? It's real clear, it's real plain. What has he done? He's saved this guy from the power and destruction of Satan. 
right? He's undone Satan's work in this guy's life. And then what's their accusation on him? Oh, you're doing that because you're of Satan. And so it's real simple, it's real plain. Jesus is just saying, give the devil a little bit of credit, okay? Does he always practice undoing his own work? Does the devil walk around going, you know, I was a little too hard on him today. Today I want to give him some truth, help him out, really build him up. Is that what he does? Oh, you know, I was, I was a, little too, a little too satanic today. I'm going to pull it back. I'm going to be nice for, for a weekend. That's not how it goes. So, so Jesus is just saying, these thoughts, these ideas that you're giving, they're ridiculous. They're irrational. They don't make sense. And then he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by who do your sons cast them out? Uh, historically, that's important because uh, the Pharisees and the Jewish religion of the day did have people that tried to do exorcisms. And they said of those people, hey, that's God's work to do that. So it's just, again, it's real simple. So if you're saying your own folks who are trying to help people in this way are working for God, then, hey, I'm the one who's actually doing it. So they'll judge you for your, for your irrational inconsistency here. So he's giving him an argument. He's just saying, you guys, that's, that's not rational. It doesn't make sense. But look how he continues in verse 20. So he's already established, I think, in his mind, and everybody really knows, he's not working for Satan. So if he's not working for Satan, who's he working for? There's, there's only one other option. If he's not working for Satan, who's he working for? God. He represents God. He is God. Look at verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So just think about how this is working. First of all, don't you love the image of the finger of God? How much, how much effort does God take? How much effort did Jesus need to, to kick out the demon? Does he even need the right arm, you know? Does he need like the whole body uppercut? No. What's he need? A finger. <laughs> love that about the power of God. But there's more to that in this reference. Um, if you go back to the story of the Exodus, and God is saving his people so powerfully with these miracles. The uh, Egyptian magicians are trying to keep up for a while. And then they, they realize they can't keep up with this kind of power. And you know what they say to Pharaoh? They say, hey, man, wake up. This is the finger of God. And it's interesting how these two passages fit. Because guess who figured out it was God working? Egyptian magicians. And guess who just can't seem to figure it out that it's God's working? These moral, religious Jews. They can't see what the pagan Egyptians saw. Incredible. I'm, by the finger of God, casting out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what are they waiting for? The kingdom of God. Hey, I want it to come. I want to be a part of it. I am a part of it. I'm a good religious person. I want the kingdom of God to come. And then when the kingdom of God actually comes, what do they call it? Satanic. You know, we say we want love and truth and kindness, and we want to live for big ideas, and we want to devote ourselves to what's best and to what's beautiful. And then what do we do? When Jesus comes, 
How do we respond? I love what Jesus gives next, 21 to 22. Did anybody watch the UFC fight last night? Do we have any of those people in here? We're not that kind of church, huh? All right. (laughs) All right. I didn't watch it either. I'm not paying money, but, you know, I, I read about the highlights. Anyway, did you know there's UFC in the Bible? It's right here. Look at 21 to 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. You see little Jesus', Jesus little story? You've got a strong man with plunder. He's a bully. He's got people in his control. And someone else comes who's stronger. And what does the stronger guy do? He breaks, he breaks the other guy's nose and takes his mess. He takes his stuff. It's Jesus' story. How does it fit with this larger story? Who's the strong man, the first strong man in our story? It's Satan. It's the devil. And what's his plunder that he has under control? It's people. It's people who've bought his lies and are facing his destruction. And the devil's got these people. And then who's the right hook? Or I guess in this case, the right finger. (laughs) And beats up the strong man and steals his spoil. Who is this great warrior stealing people from Satan? It's Jesus Christ. God's great warrior, savior, king. I'm the king who's come to save people from Satan and his works and his effects. Now look at verse 23. Such a sobering line, such an important line. Could I ask you all to read verse 23 with me? So if you forget everything else I say, you might remember this one. Let's read verse 23. You ready? Page 870. 1123. Marcus said, go. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Wow. You know, there are some things in life it's okay to be middle ground on. Maybe on some political things you find yourself in the middle, non-committed. That's okay. Maybe on some other things you're like, I'm not, I, don't, I don't need to come down on one camp or the other. But there's one thing in the world, please, don't try to be middle ground on. Don't try. It can't be done. And you know what it is? It's your response to Jesus. Did you see this? Whoever is not with me is what? against me. Do you see him responding to your response? Now, maybe you'd say, hey, look, I have never said Jesus is demon-possessed. Maybe you said, I would, I've never even said Jesus is evil. Maybe you just say, oh, I think he's a decent teacher. According to Jesus, where does he put you if you're in that category? Against him. There's no middle ground. Do you think that's fair? You know, certain relationships call for certain responses. Uh, I'm I'm married. Should I ever just be um, distant, separate, apathetic, uncaring in my response to my wife? Does that count? Can I go home, never talk to her, never help, never engage in my relationship, and just say, hey, baby, I don't hit you? Does that count? Does it work? 
Why not? Because of what that relationship is supposed to be. I'm a husband. There's only one way to be a husband, right? Loving, taking initiative, serving, engaging, okay? Who is Jesus? Who is he? He's the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the only savior. The nature of the relationship he wants to have with you is one where he's your treasure and he's the one you love the most, more than your your spouse or your kids or your boyfriend or your job. He's the one you love the most. The relationship he's supposed to have with you is he's your Lord. You wanna hear his word and obey him. The nature of the relationship he wants to have with you is to be your savior. We don't look to yourself to make yourself right with God. You look to his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's the only way to know and have him, which is why when you say, oh, you're a good teacher, but okay, Jesus says, no, you're against me. It's because of who he is. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. What's it mean to gather with Jesus? Well, if you know him and you love him, you want other people to know him and love him and hear what he's done, right? You wanna, you wanna love your neighbor. You wanna love your brother and sister. You wanna build folks up to know Jesus. You wanna gather. Let's go. Let's see Jesus. Let's love him. If you don't do that, what does Jesus say you're doing? Scattering. Again, there's no middle ground, is there? There's either all in or not in. If you don't gather, you scatter. How can he say that? Well, does anybody like sports? I'm doing all these sports and fighting illustrations today. I'm sorry. I'll get, I'll get to some crafts next, next weekend. <laughs> but let's pretend you like sports, okay? Say you have a player on the team. He's got a jersey. It's got his name on it. Never comes to practice on time. Never tries hard at practice. Never wants to win in the game. Does that help or hurt your team? Is it middle? Does it have a middle effect on your team? Or does it hurt your team? Okay? Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Do you see Jesus making this argument? I've spent a lot of time on it, but here it goes, right? Jesus does this miracle. It shows who he is. He's God's king. He's the savior. He's the healer. He's the one who saves people from Satan. And the people respond to him by saying, oh, you're just doing it in the power of Satan. So we He's after them. He's arguing with them for their good and his kindness. He's saying, that's insane. You know that's not true. I'm actually the one saving people from Satan. And because of who I am, there's only one way to respond to me. It's with everything you are. Do you see his argument? Now let's look at his warning. Look at verses 24 to 26. This is some weird stuff, isn't it? 24 to 26, and any of you go, what on earth, when we heard these verses? When the unclean spirit's gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last day that person is worse than the first. Okay, anybody know what this means? Because maybe you want to come up and tell us. Don't ever read these two verses just by themselves, right? They wouldn't work out of context. What are we supposed to do? Or learn about, you know, demonic travel activities? Uh, what's going on? Well, let's remember. Let's just remember. Who's Jesus talking to? Who's he talking to? The crowd. The crowd. And what are they like? Are they full of 
do, do all these people um, slandering Jesus, are they all possessed with demons? Are they all running around naked like the gathering guy? Are they all shaking? Are they all, are they all manifesting physically these horrible things? Or do they actually look pretty good and put together? That's the key. These folks are moral and put together. They're religious. And so Jesus, having just cleansed this guy from a demon, now uses this illustration to make a huge point and important warning. Remember, the Jews had their own guys doing exorcisms, okay? Say it worked. Say it helped people out. You know, Jesus would admit there's a lot of ways you can adjust your life. Think about it like this. Maybe there was a time in your life where your life was like more like a dumpster fire, okay? Many of us have struggled with hard, horrible things. Maybe there was alcoholism. Maybe there was big-time abuse in relationships. Maybe there was something externally everybody saw, oh, you got problems, okay? Many of us have been there. If you've been there, we love you. If you're there right now, we love you. You're welcome here. Many of us have been there, but sometimes life externally is obviously a mess. You know what? In the Gospel of Luke, those are the people who come to Jesus most easily. Those are the people who are coming. Those are the people who are knowing his power and, and feeling his love. Why? Because there's one thing those people know. They know they have a need. They know they're broken. There's a humility that has to be built in there, at least a little bit, that says, I know I'm in trouble. Somebody's got to save me. Here's what Jesus is warning you about. Okay, so say you go to the meeting for a while and you kick the drink and you kick the drugs, and say you go to class and you learn how to talk more kindly, or you, or you learn how to budget, or you finally pay off your credit cards, or you do something that, that fixes you and helps you feel at peace and helps you feel put together, and now you, you kick the demon out. And you got your living room cleaned up. But Jesus says, watch out, seven more just came in, and your, your place in life now is worse than it was at first. Wait, what? How can it be worse? Now I'm put together. Now I'm cleaned up. But you know what you've lost now? You've lost your sense of need. You think, Jesus says, you're fine without me. If you go, you know, I've seen it before, right? People get a little bit of church, or they find a healthy diet. Or they get into some good hobbies, and their life starts to put, feel more together. And they're like, fine, I don't, I don't need church anymore. Because what did they get? They got this kind of, they healed some of the symptoms. But that, that heart, the place where they long and love and need, is still empty. Jesus doesn't reign there. They got a little bit of change without Jesus, and now they feel like they don't need Jesus. And Jesus says, your morality without me is more dangerous than your immorality. Your religious practice without me is more dangerous than that place where you had explicit need, because now you're hard toward me. You think you don't need me. Do you hear his warning? Do you hear his warning? Maybe, maybe you're sitting there and you're like, hey, I'm starting to get my life together, great. And Jesus warning to you, and it's a kind warning is, unless you have me as the treasure of your heart, the Lord of your life, now you're in a worse place than you were before. Because you've dealt with the symptoms 
and not the problem. Let's back up a little bit. Who's the strong man that's got you in his basement? Satan. And you may have healed some symptoms, but you didn't have the disease. Who's the only one that can come in and free you from the power of Satan? It's Jesus. Do you see what he said to the crowds? You, in a manner of speaking, are more controlled by Satan than that guy who was deaf and mute was. He had need. You think you're fine. Wow, what a warning, what a warning. Now let's look at the invitation. Verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. <laughs> uh, in the ancient world, that's evidently a really great compliment, okay? I've never had anyone shout that at me while I was preaching, so... Sure, my mom would appreciate it. She's obviously trying to compliment him, right? There's no question. You're amazing. You're great. Jesus doesn't, he's not hard on her, is he? He doesn't like um, demean or reject her, but he redirects what she said. What's his response in verse 28? Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Hmm. He's like, yeah, I like my mom, okay, but that's not the point. What's the first word of his line? Tell me, blessed, what's it mean? What's it mean, blessed? It's not like, oh, bless you, you sneezed. No, what's it mean? What's it mean? God's love and God's grace and God's favor poured out on you. You receiving his lavish goodness, okay? So you read this, Jesus talks like this, should you want this category of blessing from him. You want this, you need this, okay? I've gotta have this. You need this more than you need anything else. Blessed are those, okay? So you wanna pay attention. This is that invitation to get out from under the thumb of the satanic strongman. This is, this is the good life, this is what I need. Blessed rather are those who, and keep it. What does Jesus mean right here? You guys, this is so important how you understand the Bible. Who's he talking to again? Crowds. Do they reject the Bible? Have they abandoned church? No, they're always in church, and they know the Bible. Is he telling them to just try harder to keep more of the commands? Is that what he's telling them? No, he's not. If you've been paying attention through the Gospel of Luke, if you've been paying attention... When people come to Jesus, he looks at them and says, you're forgiven, your faith has made you well. And when you listen to him pre preach, he'll say things like, repent and believe the gospel. So there is a turning, but it's not a turning ultimately to rules. Who are we turning to? Him, him. And so he wants them to think that to really and truly believe the word of God fits back up with verse 23, who's not with me is against me. The way to believe the word and keep it is ultimately and firstly to what? Trust yourself to Jesus. Trust yourself with all your heart to Jesus and you will know God's blessing.
I got to show you this parable in Luke 18. It's one of my favorites. I think it's foundational to understanding this book. Luke 18, we'll start at verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Did you hear that? To who? Who's he talking to? They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. If you look at your life and say, well, I'm a good person, this is for you. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. By the way, when you're self-righteous, there will be a group out there somewhere, Republicans or Democrats or somebody, that you'll think, oh, I'm better than they are. Here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Okay, just stop for a minute. What's a Pharisee like? Goes to church, knows the Bible, super moral. What's a tax collector like? Evil, bad, wicked, failure, lost. They're both praying. Look at how the Pharisee prays, verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, to God, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. <laughs> wow extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like that guy. Can you imagine? Did you all pray that way this morning when you came into worship? You're like, oh, God, thank you that I'm here, and thank you that I am so not like that person. Amen. Amazing, okay? Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He is moral. He's not lying. He does fast twice a week. He does tithe all that he gets. He's moral. He's good. You'd rather have him as your neighbor than the tax collector. Probably. Look how the tax collector plays. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying he's got one line. What does he say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What does the tax collector have to offer? The Pharisee's like, God, hey, look at all this good stuff I do for you. Thanks. The tax collector says, I have nothing but my sin. Have mercy on me. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Which, which guy was justified? Which guy was made right with God? Which guy was considered right with God, forgiven, a child of God? Which guy was it? It was the tax collector. Which guy was not it? The moral, religious Pharisee who thought he was good without Jesus. Do you see how huge this is? It's so huge. He's got seven demons over here. His, it's worse than it was. And then Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So to have this broken heart about your need and your sin and to come to Jesus with faith with faith, that's to hear the word of God and to keep it, to trust him. First John makes this very clear, First John 3, 23. And this is his commandment. This is God's commandment, that we what? Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. You wanna keep God's commands? This is, this is the tidal wave right here. What do you do? Believe in Christ. Of course, he's not just talking about a mental fact assertion. It's that heart need of trusting him with humble, repentant faith. And this gets the blessing. Let me show you one picture of the blessing. Colossians 1.12 kind of wraps it all up. You know, I, I started the sermon by saying we're gonna think about Jesus' response to our response to him. 
right? Jesus' response to our response to him. We've each been, I think, the crowd, finding a way to slander Jesus and get out from under his lordship. We've each needed that warning. I'm self-righteous, God, I'm good without you. Hey, look, I go to church, I'm a, I'm a, good, I'm a good family person. No, 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 no. We've each needed that warning. And now if you trust in Christ, this is Jesus' response to your response to him. If you've put your faith in him, this is his response to your response to him. Colossians 1.12. Number one, give what? Give thanks. You're thankful, you're happy. To who? The Father. How is it that you can call a holy God Father? You've been adopted through Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are united to Jesus Christ. His Father is your Father. Give thanks to the Father who is what? Qualified you. I love this word. Are you qualified to enjoy God's kingdom or to be in God's presence? How's your moral resume? Are you spiritually middle class or spiritually bankrupt? I am bankrupt, but he's qualified me. He's qualified you in Christ to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. His kingdom is yours. You're gonna enjoy it forever. And then look at verse 13, so pertinent to our passage. He has delivered us from what? The domain of darkness. He, he hammered Satan's chin and stole you out from that house, brought you to himself, and he's transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have what? Redemption. He bought you. You know how it is that Jesus defeated Satan? It wasn't a big haymaker to the chin, as fun as it would be to see that highlight on SportsCenter, you know? It was, it was greater, more sober, more amazing than that. It was on the cross. It was on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, not only for your big, bad, dirty sins, but also for all your self-righteous moralism that you thought was good enough, he went to the cross for it. His life is given to you, his perfection. His death on the cross to take your sins is accounted to you, and his resurrection redeemed you bought you so that you are forgiven. He defeated him on the cross. So friends, uh, as we go from here, who is Jesus? Have you encountered that? Who is he? How have you responded to him? How would he respond to your response? Let all of this move you towards a humble, repentant faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior through his cross, as your treasure. And then know that for all who trust in him, his response to you is, you're blessed. You're my people. You are loved. Let's pray, then we will celebrate the feast that goes with that blessing. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your very son to us. And we thank you for saving us and delivering us from the hand of Satan. And Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness we have, the redemption we have in you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in each one of us to draw us close, show us our need, 
and help us put our faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.